listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're going to get right into our sermon, which is <coughs> throwing you a curveball, because we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a long time and uh, kind of working our way through it. But this particular weekend, I just felt inspired. Actually, last Sunday, I made this call. Originally, I was going to go right to the next passage, but I felt inspired to take a little detour for just this weekend. Um, You know, there's so many different denominations and churches around the world that uh, follow the Christian calendar. And this weekend, in fact, tomorrow on the Christian calendar, all of us follow the Christian calendar to some degree. We always celebrate Christmas and Easter, and and a lot of churches celebrate Good Friday. But this Sunday, uh, what many of you may not know, uh, this coming Sunday tomorrow is Transfiguration Sunday, where millions of Christians all around the world take time to think upon, reflect, meditate on the transfiguration of Jesus, which is what we're going to look at Uh, in just a moment. But traditionally, Transfiguration Sunday has always been the entry point into the season of Lent. You know, Lenten is this 40-day season. It actually actually covers 46 calendar days, but we omit the Sundays, and the Sundays are set aside for celebration. So Lent covers, other than the Sundays, 40 days and it's a season where we, we fast, we self-reflect, we, we, we walk the path of self-denial, and we join Jesus on the road to the cross and Good Friday. And so Transfiguration Sunday is very appropriately the entry point into Lent. And I thought that because I'm not doing a Lenten series this year, because we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, I thought maybe the least I could do is take this particular weekend and focus on the event of the transfiguration of Christ. So that's what we're going to do this evening. Um, Go ahead and look at uh, Luke chapter 9. It'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 9, and I want us to look at verses 28 all the way through verse 37. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. On the next day, 
when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. The transfiguration of Jesus is recorded in three of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now John, he's writing later, he's doing something different, he structures it differently because he knows that the other three already exist. So John's doing something else. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the transfiguration and they place it right in the middle of their gospel story, their account. And what's interesting is when you look at the placement of the transfiguration of Christ, right in the middle of these gospels, you notice that there is a tone shift that following the transfiguration, the whole mood changes. The tenor of the gospel changes. In the first half of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, leading up to the transfiguration, there's a sense of hope. There's a feeling of optimism. You know, there's songbirds singing. The sun is shining. And everything's looking up. Jesus' popularity is growing. This is where he does a lot of his miracles and heals a lot of people and drives out a lot of demons. This is where he's feeding multitudes and he's blessing babies. And everything's on the up climb. Everything's ascending. Things are looking up. And it builds to this crescendo that climaxes in the middle of the Gospels when we see Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah are there with him. This is the climax. This is what everything is building up towards in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then Jesus takes his three closest disciples and they descend down the mountain. And I think that this is not only a literal truth, it's a metaphorical device as well. Because everything following the Transfiguration is a ever downward descent. And rather than there being songbirds singing, now it's like there's like a a lone crow and it's ominous call. And there's a sense of foreboding in this ever downward descent, not even just into the valley of the shadow of death, but into death itself on Calvary. Well, this evening and this weekend, I'm going to talk to you about descending the mountain. That's the title of my sermon. That's the theme and the topic, Descending the Mountain. But before I get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the transfiguration itself. The transfiguration of Jesus, I would argue, is one of the absolute most significant events in the earthly life of Christ. If you were to say, okay, what are the the handful of absolutely essential, significant events in Christ's earthly life? I think we can all agree that his birth, would fit that description, what we celebrate every Christmas. So we would, of course, include his birth. Then I think most Christians would definitely include his baptism, which marks the beginning of his ministry. And then we tend to fast forward to the other end of the spectrum, and we want to include his death, of course. (laughs) How could you not include his death on the cross? And then also what happens three days later Uh, with the resurrection. So we have at the beginning his birth and his baptism, and then at the end his death and resurrection. But, But between these two bookends, right in the middle, we have to include the transfiguration of Christ. It's absolutely essential. And there's a common thread that pulls all of these five events together. 
each one of these five events is accompanied by some form of divine communication, whether in the form of an angel or the voice from heaven or something like that. So, so for example, if we start at the beginning with this birth, we know that well, the angels were present multiple times, and there was this announcement, for unto you is born this day in the, in the city of David uh, a Savior, etc. So we have angelic visitation at the beginning, and then we move to his baptism. And as Jesus is uh, coming out of the water, the voice speaks from the heavens and declares, you are my son. I love you so much. In you I am well pleased. And then we fast forward to his death, and as Jesus is preparing for his suffering and his death, uh, the voice of the Father again speaks and says, I have glorified my name, and I shall glorify it again. And then, of course, after his resurrection, when the women make it to the empty tomb, the angels are there to inform them he is not here, for he is risen. But finally, right in the middle of these great bookend events, with the transfiguration of Christ on this mountaintop, the voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, what happens right before the transfiguration? Well, Jesus takes his disciples on a journey. It's the longest journey Jesus makes in the Gospels. And they journey north to the extreme northern corner of Israel, this region called Caesarea Philippi. And somewhere along this journey, Jesus poses a question to them. And he says, who do men say that I am? What are people saying out there? Who do they think I am? And the disciples are like, well, uh, some people say this. Some people say that. Different opinions. Some say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say the prophet. They have different perspectives. And then Jesus says, okay, but <clears throat> let me turn the question to you guys who have been following me this whole time. Who do you say that I am? And all of a sudden, everybody looks at their feet, <laughs> except Simon Peter. Simon Peter is the only one who speaks. And he says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. In other words, you are the anointed king who has come to save us and restore Israel. And Jesus responds and says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't come up with this on your own. You didn't get this by thinking about it for a long time. You have received this as revelation from my Father. So Peter correctly identifies Jesus is Messiah, and Jesus affirms and says, you are right. But here's an interesting question to ponder. What does Peter think it means to say Jesus is Messiah? What does Peter think that looks like? What does Peter, how does Peter think all of that's going to play out and how that's going to look, this idea of Jesus being Messiah? And I think as we continue to learn about Peter, as we continue on the journey, what we find out about Peter is he's not unlike pr pretty much everybody in, in Israel at this time. And Peter has a very particular idea of what it means to be Jewish Messiah. And his mind travels back about 150 years to a guy named Judah Maccabee. And Judah takes up the sword, uh, uh, galvanizes a, a revolution, and they revolt against the Seleucid Empire, put them in their place, kick their butts, can I say that? And, 
and then restores, after hundreds of years, restores finally the national sovereign identity of Israel. And Judah the Hammer, that's what they call him, Judah the Hammer becomes a national hero, the way you and I venerate George Washington, perhaps. And ever since Judah Maccabee, when the common Jew imagines what will Messiah be like, Judah's the prototype. And so Peter's thinking, when he says, Jesus, I know who you are, you're Messiah. What's buried deep beneath that statement is, Jesus, you're going to launch this revolution. And of course he's thinking that. And that's why he pulls out his sword in Gethsemane. He's thinking, all right, they're trying to arrest him. Now's the time. Here's what we've been waiting for. So I want you to know that Peter correctly identifies and confesses who Jesus is, but he has a completely misguided, wrong-headed understanding of what that means and what that looks like. And it's going to take years and it's going to take pain to purge that out of him. But in the meantime, Jesus continues to bring him along for the ride. And about a week later, he takes Peter along with two others, James and John, the brothers. These are, these are Jesus' three closest disciples. And he takes them up, what the gospel simply say is a high mountain. They don't tell us which mountain. Traditionally, the church has always venerated what's called Mount Tabor in Galilee, and that's always been considered the Mount of Transfiguration. There's actually a shrine built on Mount Tabor that commemorates this event. And so that's always been, you know, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Tabor. But when you look at Mount Tabor, which if you go to Israel, you're going to see it, it's not a high mountain at all. It's just this little knob of a hill. And most scholars have moved away from that. And they believe that the actual mountain where this event happened is actually north. It's, it's the most northern point of Israel, very close to where they would have been in Caesarea Philippi. A very, it's the tallest point in Israel called Mount Hermon. It's about 92, 9,300 feet above sea level. And so it, had been, it would have been quite a climb. It was a very high mountain. And Jesus, nevertheless, takes these three guys and they ascend up this mountain. And they reach the summit. And I don't want to preach the whole story. But essentially what happens is, as Jesus begins to pray, Peter, James, and John fall asleep. And the sad thing is, this isn't even the last time that's going to happen. But they fall asleep. And a short time later, they're awakened by these crazy events that are happening right there on the top of the mountain. And as they open their eyes, they look and they see Jesus, who is transfigured. Now, how many of you have gone this entire month without using the word transfigured in everyday life? Every one of us. <coughs> it's just not a word that we use outside of a religious context when we're talking about this. The word transfigured comes from the Greek word metamorpho. I'm sure you can figure out what English word we get from that. And it just means to be changed, to take on a new form, to be transformed. It's actually used two other places in the New Testament, in Romans 12 too, where it says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't let this, the world squeeze you into its own mold be transformed, be metamorphosized, be transfigured, take on a new form by the renewing of your mind. And then again in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we with unveiled faces, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and we are being changed, 
transformed, transfigured, metamorphosized into the same image from glory to glory. So I want you to, I want you to begin to think that what's happening to Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration, I don't know, what, do you want to use the word symbol? It's, it's an indication of ultimately what God wants to do in all of us. He wants all of us, our lives, our very lives to be transformed, transfigured, beautified, glorified uh, for his glory. Amen? And, and, and so they see Jesus, his image is transfigured, and it says that his face shines like the brightness of the sun. His clothes begin to radiate, beams of light emit from his clothing. And as if that weren't strange enough, all of a sudden these two visitors from a totally different age show up on the mountain with Jesus. Moses and Elijah from hundreds of years earlier back in the Old Testament, all of a sudden they're on the mountain with Jesus present in this spectacular unveiling of the glory of Christ. Now think how overwhelming uh, this would be for Peter, James, and John. They're pinching themselves. Wait, am I still sleeping? Am I dreaming here? And Peter doesn't know what to do. He's overwhelmed, so he starts thinking rationally. And Peter says, um, I- I've got an idea. He's, he just says, what if we just right now build three tabernacles, three tents, three memorials for, for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and we just sort of capture this moment. That's what Peter wants to do. He wants to freeze this moment in time. He wants to objectify the moment. You know, over the last couple decades, one of the things, probably the thing that's changed our lives the most is this little device that we all carry around. And we call it a phone, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? It's got a lot of things we can do on this deal. And um, one of them is a camera. You know, so we, we have this camera with us all the time. And, and I know these, these phones have improved our lives in so many ways, and I don't think we, we'd want to go back to not having them, although it might do us a little bit of good, but, but they certainly have improved our lives. And yet they've also had a lot of negative effects, and I don't want to dwell too much on that, but I think one of the negative effects of having a camera with you everywhere you go is that if we're not careful, it can, it can form us into people who live and experience our lives through the lens of a viewfinder. You know, I've taken a lot of people to Israel with me, and we're going back again next year. And of course, when you go to Israel, you've got to take pictures. I mean, there's so, many, so much to take pictures. But, but there's been a couple people that I've taken with me in the past to Israel, and I'm, I'm not kidding you. It's like everywhere we go, they experience the entire trip like this. Everywhere, like they're looking into their phone the entire time, and and I'm not and taking over a thousand pictures. This is how they experience Israel, and it's like I want to just go to them and shake them, and say, you know what, you're here right now. <laughs> you are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee right now. You will never have a chance to do this again. Why don't you take this and maybe consider putting it down and just be in the moment and experience this. But, but we, we're so quick to want to capture the moment, freeze it in time, objectify the moment, market the moment, rather than being in the moment. And so Peter makes this proposal, and he's, he thinks he's uh, paying Jesus a high compliment. Jesus, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build three tabernacles side by side. Moses, Elijah, right in the middle, 
tabernacle for you, Jesus. I'm putting you on the same level. Like, that's how highly I think of you, Jesus. You belong in the same pantheon with Moses and Elijah. And he, he expects Jesus to say, wow, that is high praise. Instead, there's a voice that speaks from heaven. I think in the original Greek, it says something like, shut up. This is my beloved son. This is not a prophet like Moses or Elijah. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And these three Jewish boys, they've had more than they can take and they pass out and fall on their faces. And they're terrified. And the next thing they know is Jesus is putting his hand on their shoulder telling them not to be afraid. And they lift up their heads and they open their eyes and they look around and Moses is gone. Elijah is gone and only Jesus remains. Now I want to say one more word about the transfiguration. And I hope, this, I hope you'll get this. What happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is a kind of prophecy of what God ultimately intends to do for his entire creation. Right now, creation itself is in bondage. Creation is subject to decay and death and all of the collateral damage of sin. And listen to me, follower of Jesus. The great hope is not just that Jesus is going to come back with a rescue party and evacuate us out of here. No, 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 no. The great hope is that God in Christ is going to recreate, restore, and transfigure all of his good creation. What God is interested in saving is not just our disembodied souls. God wants to save it all. All that will cooperate with God's character, God wants to save it and redeem it. And, and this is a huge paradigm shift that if you have not yet made, please do. Because it's absolutely foundational to the gospel announcement that the apostles make in the New Testament. This is Romans 8 stuff. This is 1 Corinthians 15 stuff. That, that creation itself is groaning because it's been made subject to decay and bondage and, and death. But when God's purposes are completely accomplished through Christ... Even creation itself is going to be liberated so that the glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is God's great big vision. And all of that is foreshadowed when we gaze into the eyes of the transfigured Christ. All right. Well, having had this incredible mountaintop experience, Jesus now takes his disciples and they leave their mountaintop experience and they begin their downward descent. I've taken to hiking mountains. I enjoy it. I've been doing that regularly here in Los Angeles since I've moved here. I love hiking mountains. Carrie and I did a little bit of that in the Rocky Mountains not long before we came. We just enjoy, we enjoy that. I, I, I just really enjoy it. And, and especially there's this feeling you get when you reach the summit, especially when it's a very challenging climb. When you get to the summit of the mountain, there's just this incredible feeling of accomplishment. But listen, here's the difference between climbing a mountain and running a marathon. 
is that when you run a marathon and you've made it your 26.2 miles and you cross the finish line, you have this wonderful feeling of accomplishment and there's a celebratory moment and you enjoy it and then you get to go home because you're done and you, couldn't, you can go take a bath and go to bed. But when you climb a mountain, when you ascend a mountain and get to the apex, the summit of the mountain, yes, you have a time where you enjoy the view and you take it in and you, you snap your pictures and there's a moment of celebratory excitement and exuberance, but you're exactly halfway done. Because now you've got to come down the mountain. In fact, going up the mountain is optional. Coming down the mountain is not optional. And sometimes coming down the mountain is even more treacherous because at least when you're climbing up, everything's right in front of you. It's very easy to slip and lose your footing when you're descending the mountain. Here's what I want to say to you about the Christian life. And I, I just feel this so strongly tonight. And I want you to know this. The Christian life is not an ever upward ascent. In other words, the Christian life is not just one constant stream of mountaintop experiences. Or I could say it this way, the Christian life is not one constant spiritual high. There comes a point when you've got to come down the mountain. Jesus is going to lead you up the mountain. And it's, it's euphoric, it's exciting, and you have a moment where you're taking it in, you're, you're snapping pictures, and you enjoy it for about a half an hour or so, but there comes a point if you're following Jesus, he's going to look at his watch, or he's going to look at the clouds and say, it's time to get down. You cannot live in a mountaintop experience. And if you try to do that, and I've known people throughout my life who have done this, where, where they try to take this euphoric spiritual high, this mountaintop experience, and they want to stretch it out and try to sustain it over an entire lifetime. And if you attempt to do that, I'm going to tell you one thing, you're going to be doing it without Jesus. Because Jesus will lead you up mountaintop experiences, but he's also going to lead you downward, descending off the mountain into everyday, ordinary, real life, because that's where the Christian life is lived. In recent years, I've done a lot of work with men with addictions. You know, we had a ministry in our church that we came from, uh, a residential ministry, and we dealt with men with Lifelong addictions to substances, and I know some of you perhaps have come out of an addictive lifestyle. This church here at Village, we've always had this robust recovery ministry, and, and for many of you, maybe that's part of your story. But I can remember, you know, watching men come into our program, and for years, maybe for decades, they were addicted to substances, addicted to alcohol, or something else. And that's all they know. That's their entire mentality, is, is an addict's mentality. And, and they come into our program, and now they're in this controlled environment where they're separated from all of this stuff. And I can tell you what I would observe over time is with a lot of these men, they come in, they get away from the substance, or they get away from whatever it is they were, they were addicted to, and they get into this program. And within a few days, usually, what would happen with some of these men, it's like all of a sudden now, Jesus becomes their new drug. And they get addicted to Jesus, 
And all of a sudden now, they're obsessed with the scriptures and they're obsessed with prayer. And you can always tell because they walk in next Sunday and they got their Bible under their arm and they're excited and they come on the front row and, and as soon as worship starts, they're the first one up and they can't wait to lift their hands and they're singing louder than everyone and they're moving around and clapping and they're all excited. And there's like this adrenaline rush. It's a spiritual high. And then invariably, if you give it about three or four weeks, that spiritual high wears off. The excitement, the adrenaline's no longer pumping. And they come down involuntarily. And, and they, they think to themselves, what is wrong? I was so, quote unquote, on fire. I was excited. The adrenaline was flowing. I was in this euphoric season. And now it's gone. What happened? My, my relationship with God is no longer working. It's working just fine. It's just that you can only stay so long on the mountaintop. And then you need to go back down into real life. And sometimes, sometimes the impetus of the whole thing is something in their real life hits them smack in the face. There's a family member who's struggling at home. Or there's somebody, a family member who's cut them off and now they're depressed. Or, um, or maybe it's just as simple as a knucklehead they're sharing a bunk with, you know? But real life all of a sudden encroaches upon their spiritual high and it sucks the adrenaline and excitement out of it and they think something's wrong. Jesus, listen, Jesus doesn't save the world as this spiritual guru sitting on a mountaintop dispensing wisdom from on high and we gotta go up and meet him every so often. Jesus saves the world by diving deep into human pain and suffering, into the depths of it. It's by his wounds we are healed. Jesus redeems humanity by joining himself to humanity and diving into the worst of human suffering. But this idea that Christianity can be authentically lived as an eternal mountaintop experience is simply not true. And when we attempt to make it like that, it's utterly destructive. Let mountaintop experiences happen. That's all you've got to do. Just let them happen. If Jesus wants you to have one, he'll lead you into it. Don't manufacture them. Don't chase after them. Just let them happen. And they're going to happen. The longer you stay with Jesus, you're going to have, how many of you know what I'm talking about when I say a mountaintop experience? You're going to have profound encounters with God in prayer. You will. How many of you know what, how many of you experienced that? Or profound uh, moments of worship and you're just caught up in his presence and tears begin to flow, perhaps. You're going to have those moments. But let them happen. Mountaintops, by nature, are alien environments. When you think about like a, a huge mountain range, like, for example, the Himalayan mountains in southern Asia, there's a certain height up above that height. They call it the death zone. Somewhere up above 24, 25,000 feet. They call it the, the death zone. You can climb up above that, but you can't stay there very long. That's why when you see pictures of people who have climbed Mount Everest and they've reached the summit, almost always they're wearing some device that gives them supplemental oxygen. Because the human body's not capable of acclimating to that environment for very long. It, it just can't stay in that environment. 
And, and so they'll, they'll reach the summit and they may take their oxygen mask off for a moment so that they can snap their pictures and frame it so they can put it in their house and they get their t-shirts that say, I summited Everest and all of that. And they have their wonderful mountaintop experience, but there comes a point they realize we got to get back down because we cannot stay. We're in the death zone. Mountaintop experiences are good and they often give us beautiful revelation of Christ. But inevitably what Jesus will do is he will lead us back down the mountain into everyday, ordinary, humdrum life where we have to deal with cranky coworkers and obstinate kids and poor drivers on the freeway. We gotta deal with the frustrations of everyday, ordinary life and folks, This is how Christianity happens. This is where it's lived. This is where we become apprentices of Jesus and we learn the Jesus way is in everyday ordinary life. But sometimes we're not only led back into the normalcy of ordinary life, sometimes we're led from the mountaintop into the valley of the shadow of death. We don't like it, but it happens. But this is the story that the gospels give us. Jesus takes his three disciples and they descend the Mount of Transfiguration. And I'm telling you, from that point on, you look at it, everything changes. Tensions begin to rise. The mood is foreboding. There's more controversy. Jesus can't hardly do anything now without controversy. People are leaving him. People are deserting him. It's getting harder. There are conspiracies now to murder him. There are plots against him. There's a Judas in the camp. And ultimately, it all leads to the suffering and torture of the crucifixion. And folks, listen, all of that follows a mountaintop experience. It doesn't invalidate the mountaintop experience. But I think perhaps maybe one of the reasons why God enables us and allows us to have huge euphoric spiritual highs is in order to prepare us for the valley of the shadow of death that awaits us. So yes, we're going to have mountaintop experiences, but listen to me, friends, you're you're also going to have moments in your life where you're going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know people in our church right now who probably feel that way this very moment. You're going to have those seasons, and I think that perhaps it may help us to at least know right now ahead of time that that's a normal part of the Christian journey. And just understand that just because you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, does not mean God has forsaken you. Because on the other side of this is resurrection. One way or another, however that plays out, resurrection awaits. And see, there's something that's even greater and better and more exciting than the Mount of Transfiguration and that's the garden of resurrection. But that kind of Christianity can only be accessed through Gethsemane and Golgotha. You cannot go through life skipping from one mountaintop to the next. If, if you're one of those folks who, who just says to yourself, I'm just going to live on the mountaintop, I'm going to make that my life's dream, just living on the mountaintop and just preserving the spiritual high. I'm going to tell you, I've known dear friends who have made that the goal of their Christian life. I'm just going to be blunt, and I'm going to tell you exactly where this leads. When you try to sustain this mountaintop experience and chase after it your whole life, what eventually happens is spiritual life dies in you, and it gets replaced with this weird 
fanaticism that people cannot relate to. And, and, and other people may look at you and say, wow, that's a spiritual person, only because you fooled them. But people can't relate to it. And you, you, you end up not leaving much of a difference in the world. If you're following Jesus authentically, he will also lead you down the mountain into everyday, ordinary life. And we have to become people who learn to find glory in the ordinary. And occasionally in your life, you're going to encounter moments and seasons that feel a whole lot like Gethsemane and a whole lot like Golgotha. But I just want you to know, it never ends there. Because eventually we find ourselves in the Garden of Resurrection. Learning to turn garbage dumps into gardens. And that's what this whole thing is about. Until the whole world is transfigured in the glory of Christ. And the great blessing is that we don't have to wait till we die to get a taste of that. Right now, let's be people who are being transformed and participate in God's transfiguring, transforming work in the world. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.